Our scripture today on which the sermon is based comes from Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 through 17. Now page 61 in your pew Bibles. Hear these words from the book that we love. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness or anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water above, or sorry, water under the earth. You shall not bow to them or serve them, for I am the Lord your God, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath and made it holy. Honor your father and mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God has given you. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. This is God's word. This week I had dinner with some Anglicans, um, as you probably do yourselves, is get dinner with Anglicans, but that's something I do. And uh, during my time with the Anglicans, as we were discussing what it would look like for them to plant a church in Philadelphia and how Liberty, the church I'm the pastor at, could help them in any way. And as we were sitting there, I mentioned that this week I'm preaching on worship. And they laughed and one of their priests joked, just one week on worship? And I felt the weight of that. Like, yeah, yeah, just one week on worship. That's all I'm going to be dedicating to that. And, and I realized that that is a heavy, heavy load to carry. And it is a heavy thing to try to get through. And we probably could spend months just on worship. But like a food tasting at a restaurant, the goal here is just to give you a little taste of what the Bible says about worship in hope that you will come back to the Bible and look for yourself and whet your appetite and want more. So, as we look at worship today, um, and I should point out that that was my fault, it's not worship in quotes, question mark, like worship? I am actually preaching on worship, but I accidentally uh, sent Linda an email that made it very confusing. So, that's my fault, not Linda's fault. She's doing a fantastic job. So, so that I can put the rest. I am preaching on worship today. And what I want us to understand is that the gospel frees us to love God in worship. And in worship, we remember and anticipate God's story, and then we reorient our lives around it. 
So the gospel frees us to do many things, but one of them is to love God in worship. And there's aspects of worship that we have to look at. And what what the Bible says about worship, the Bible points out that worship remembers, anticipates, and reorients us. And so for us, it doesn't necessarily matter what we think worship is or what we think it should be. What matters is what the Bible says worship is and it should be. And so if you have any interest in maybe reading more, there's a book called Ancient Future Faith by Robert Weber. There's some really helpful things in there. But that's really helped me particularly draw out these themes in Scripture. But ultimately, I hope to show you today this is what the Bible says about worship so that you would want to worship more and completely change your life to do so. So we can see worship not just as something we do on Sundays, but something we do every day of our lives. And so worship, like I said, there's three aspects of it. Remembrance, anticipation, and reorientation. Remembrance, anticipation, and reorientation. Now, I just read to you the Ten Commandments. And if you have a church background, you go into church for a while, there's a chance that we're tempted to see the Ten Commandments as simply a list of rules. But frankly, that would be an incomplete picture. So we look at verse 1. It says that, it says this, And God spoke all these words, saying. See, when we look at a list as a list of rules, it generally we can think that it's about us doing something. But truly, it starts with God. God spoke all these words, saying. And what we see from the book of Exodus this isn't the first time that God speaks. So if you were to rewind the tape of Exodus or go back to Exodus chapter 3, if we had time, we would look there and we would see God speaking to Moses through a what? A burning bush. There you go. You guys can participate. It's okay. You can do it. But at the burning bush, God makes it aware that he sees his people. His people, Israel, have been enslaved to the Egyptians. And God speaks to Moses. Moses is just wandering around as a shepherd. He's taking care of a sheep. And who initiates the conversation? God. God does. And then in Exodus 3, we see that God commands Moses to go to Egypt. Go back to Egypt where he came from and tell Pharaoh to let his people go. And in chapter 3, verse 18, God tells Moses to tell Pharaoh to free his people so that they could worship him. And the way it says it is that they may offer sacrifices to the Lord your God. The point of them being freed, the point of you and I being freed from slavery for us, slavery to sin is so that we can worship God. So when we fast forward, Moses goes to Pharaoh. And if you know the story, Moses goes and tells Pharaoh that God wants him to let his people go. And Pharaoh isn't really interested in that idea. He's got a ton of free labor. Things are getting built. No problem. He's like, why would I do that? No, I'm not going to let your people go. So you fast forward even more, God then judges Pharaoh, Egypt, and their gods by sending a series of plagues. 
And eventually, Pharaoh allows Israel to leave. And as they're leaving, they're crossing the Red Sea. And if you remember the story, they go through the Red Sea on dry land. And then Pharaoh chases, and his army's chasing after Moses and, and Israel. And the waves just crash in on them and kill them. And then Israel ends up at Mount Sinai, which is what God promised in Exodus 3. And so here we are in Exodus 20, Israel at Mount Sinai, and God speaks again. But this time, God doesn't speak to just Moses as he did everybody else. As he did up to this point, he speaks to everybody else. So if we were to read verses 18 through 21, you would see that the people actually are afraid. Hebrews hints at this. The passage we read in Hebrews are afraid because all of a sudden God is speaking to them. So I think all of us, myself included, if God were to audibly speak to us in this moment, we all would be a little freaked out. We, sometimes we read those stories, you know, God shows up in the temple and Isaiah is freaked out or, you know, an angel shows up and talks to Mary and, and they're and like afraid, or the shepherds are afraid, and we just kind of read that. But think about that. Enter the story. You're at a temple and all of a sudden, I mean, you're at a, excuse me, you're at a mountain. All of a sudden, God audibly speaks to you. It would freak me out. Apparently, I'm the only one based on your facial reactions. <laughs> So God speaks again, he speaks to everybody, and he speaks directly to his people. And when he does, what does he do? He reminds them that he freed them from Egypt. And out of response to his love for them, he commands them to obey him. So here's a a side note. We obey God not to make God love us, but because God loves us, we obey God. You see a difference? It's like you shouldn't date your wife so she'll love you. Because you love your wife, you date her. Or because she loves you, you date her. See the difference? One is earning love, attempting to earn love, and the other is knowing you're loved and responding accordingly. And this brings us to the first aspect of worship. So look at verse 2 of Exodus 20. Remembrance. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Worship remembers God's story. My dad was a worship pastor for about 30 to 40 years, and he used to say all the time, worship reminds me it's not about me. It's about God. And that's absolutely true. But worship also reminds me of God's story. And what he's done. God's story begins in eternity past. God wasn't created. We all have start dates. God didn't have a start date. He always existed. So we're to remember his story as it relates to creation. So in Genesis 1 we read in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. God did. You and I weren't there. Moses wasn't there. David wasn't there. Jesus was there but that's kind of come a little we'll talk about that a little bit you'll hear a verse about that in a little bit the apostles weren't there god he created the heavens and the earth and continuing it says the earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the face of the earth and the spirit of god was hovering over the water of, of the over the face of the waters and god said let there be light and there was light so just like he did at mount sinai before the universe is created god 
speaks and he speaks everything into existence. So every part of creation, from the light that comes through your windows in the morning to the stars in the sky to your best friend, are all part of God's story of creation. The story he spoke into existence. But you may know, as the other, chapter 3 of Genesis rolls around, Rather than loving their creator, God's creation turns and loves themselves. And that the first humans love themselves more than they love God. And so sin and death entered into the world. So now all of us are born into spiritual slavery and need to be freed. All of us are born in spiritual darkness and need the light. So what does God do? The rest of scripture... His goal, the thrust of Scripture, is to get us back to Eden. That this is how I wanted it to be. And although you messed it up, this is how it will be anyway. So God sent Jesus, his son, the greater Moses, the light of the world, to rescue us and to bring us back to Eden. To free us from spiritual slavery when we put our faith and trust in him. And to be shown the spiritual light to get out of spiritual darkness. So when John, the apostle, talks about Jesus coming into the world, how does he speak of it? Listen, it's the same words. In the beginning was the Word, Jesus. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then in verse 9, the true light, Jesus, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. In the beginning Light. This time is the true light. So this is a new beginning. It's a recreation that's begun in Jesus. And he's the true light that came to rescue us from our spiritual darkness. So, all that to say, when we worship, we remember God's story. We remember his love toward us in creation in creating the world and in his rescue by sending Jesus to save us from spiritual slavery and spiritual darkness. And so worship, in many ways, is rooted in memory. Deuteronomy chapter 6, the Israelites are told to remember what God has done by telling their children about how he rescued them from Egypt. The whole Passover meal is about remembering what God has done for them in the Exodus. Psalm 77, 11, the, the Bible's worship book says this, I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. When we take communion, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians, he repeats back to us as Jesus has said, do this in remembrance of me. Worship is rooted in memory. Remembrance. Remember what God has done in creation and rescue. Even the observance of Sabbath is rooted in memory of God's work in creation. Verse 8, we just read, remember the Sabbath, keep it holy. And why does God say that? Does he say, well, because, you know, scientific research and psychologists now say that it's actually better for you if you take off 
one day a week. It's better for your mental, physical, and emotional health. So I think, as God, that's a good idea. We should do that too. Does he do that? No. He says, why should he do that? For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Remember when God rested? You're to rest. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath, the Sabbath day, and made it holy. So in worship we remember God's story of creation and rescue. And while the recreation has started in Christ, we also anticipate the story of recreation coming to completion. So we, re- we remember, and, but we also anticipate. So you look at chapter 21 of Revelation, verse 1, it says this, Then I saw a new heaven and new earth, for in the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I'm making all things new. Worship anticipates God's story. Have you ever been so excited about something? Like you ever anticipated something that just like the excitement just like bubbles out of you? Like you just like can't contain it? Right? Maybe it's like a home project. You're like, I know it's taking me like three years to hang up these shelves for my wife. But I finally got around. I'm going to finally get around to it. This is the year. This is going to be my year. Right? I'm going to hang up those shelves. I can't wait to do it. It's going to look awesome. Cowboys fans every year. This is our year. It's going to be great. We're going to win the Super Bowl. Just anticipating this. Well, maybe you're like, all right, so maybe those analogies don't work, right? You don't really do home projects or like the Cowboys. Neither do I like the Cowboys. I think that's pretty clear from my history. But maybe you're like driving down I-95, and you're like, you're anticipating when it's going to be done. You're like, 30 to 40 years from now, when this thing is done, it's going to be absolutely awesome. Until we know, until at that point, we need six lanes instead of four. But for now, let's just anticipate it's going to be really exciting. And like my family, we end up at Disney World a lot, and you know, we see a new ride being built, and we go, oh man, I can't wait for that ride to be finished and to experience it. A large part of worship is anticipating. Look at what the world's going to be like when Jesus returns. I can't wait for that to happen. What, what that world will look like when Jesus comes back and fixes it. We anticipate that in our worship. It's not just remembering, it's also anticipation. So the Ten Commandments actually even invite us to anticipate what a world would be like if it was filled with God's people and there was no things like murder, could you imagine what a world would be like without murder? Like even if Christians agreed to not murder each other, how much better that would be? Or adultery, or stealing, or lying or coveting. That world would be wonderful. And guess what? If you put your faith and trust in Jesus, that world will be your world one day. Where sin will be no more. 
death will be no more. Crying and pain and tears will be no more. Everything you feel in you, the gaps, the things that feel wrong and upside down within you will all be made right. The things you feel like are upside down and are wrong within our world and there's just these gaps there of logic and thinking and and how people approach life, all that will be fixed. So it's oftentimes where I know for myself, I come to worship and I'm just like, oh, well, you know, here we go, another Sunday. But if I was anticipating that one day Jesus is going to come back, I don't think I would ever show up to church bored or emotionless. But I do. So it's a reminder that just like it was in creation, It will be in recreation. And so we anticipate that day in our worship and not not just worship and other things we do and how we build community, how we we reach out in outreach and mercy. And we anticipate a day when we'll be fully free to worship God. That would be an amazing day. Think about even like in terms of community and relationships with each other. One day there'll be a time where you get to dwell in unity with the chance, without the chance that sin will mess things up. Like Christians, like they're my people. They're some of the hardest people to get along with. Really hard. Could you imagine if sin didn't exist? Like my sin and their sin? It'd be amazing. Or to experience the mercy of God as he wipes away every tear from your eye. Everything you've suffered, everything you've gone through. He just comforts you immensely to the point where it's just gone. The pain's gone. The suffering's gone. And this is God's story. It's a story of creation, rescue, and recreation. So in worship, we remember and anticipate God's story. And the most obvious way we do that is in our weekly gatherings. One day a week, we Sabbath. We set aside Sunday is a day of rest for worship and fellowship with other Christians. And when we do, we remember and anticipate God's story of creation, rescue, and recreation. So for instance, sermons, sermons aren't just, on Sunday mornings, aren't just like Sunday morning TED Talks. Like, I'm not up here to give you a lecture either. That's not what they're about. In preaching, what we do is we recite and we remember God's actions in history and we point to a day that's going to be even better than this. Everything's going to be perfect. Like, that's going to be awesome. Don't forget it. And we need that for ourselves. We're creeds. Like Robert Weber says that creeds are soundbite testimonies to God's long activity to bring about his purposes for our world. See, we remember in creeds. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. But we also anticipate that one day Jesus will come again to judge the living and the dead. We anticipate the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. In confession, we remember our sin and how we needed God to rescue us. And in assurance, when we hear the assurance of pardon, we're reminded of the ultimate forgiveness that we'll receive from God and Jesus, that one day I'll stand before God because of what Jesus done for me and God will say, Evan, everything you've done, every sin is now forgiven. Completely forgiven. 
or in communion, we remember God's story of creation, excuse me, of rescue in Jesus' death and resurrection, excuse me, death on the cross. In our church, we, we say, we, before we take communion, we say, Christ has died, Christ has risen. Remember. But we also anticipate Christ will come again. And what does Paul tell us to do? Anticipate. We proclaim this. We proclaim what? His death until he comes. We're songs. Songs help us remember the great things that God has done, but also anticipate the things he will do according to his promises. So Sundays are incredibly important for this reason. To help us remember and anticipate. And Hebrews 10 gets at this. Hebrews 10, 24, 25 says, And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. What, so what do we do in worship? We do God's story. We don't neglect Sunday worship. We gather together in it. And when we do, we encourage each other by what God has done in the past. But we also anticipate the day, Hebrews calls it, the day Jesus will return. So Sunday, Sunday worship is one massive act of remembrance and anticipation coming together. And so the whole worship service, our whole time together, should, it should be us constantly saying, hey, remember this? Remember what Jesus did for us? Remember what God did for us in creation? And hey, man, can we not wait for that? Can we not wait? And so we remember, we anticipate, but we also are reoriented. So if you do like a quick flyby of the Ten Commandments, starting in verse 3. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall make not make for yourself a carved image. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Remember the Sabbath to keep it holy. Honor your father and mother. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. You shall not covet. Worship reorients our lives around God's story. Do you see the reorientation that God has given them? This is what it's like to live as my people. And so what worship does, worship brings remembrance, the past, and the anticipation of the future, and brings them into the present as we reorient our lives to live lives of worship daily. So worship reorients our lives. It changes the way we live, and we constantly live remembering what God has done for me and what he's done for you, and anticipate what he will do, and that changes how we live now. So Romans 12, 1 says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable, which is your spiritual worship. We are free to love God by worshiping him in our daily lives. We see time as God's time, so we reorient our lives to be with God. We see people as God's people, so we reorient our lives to spend time with other Christians or to tell other people about Jesus. We see money as God's money. So we reorient our spending around God. So John Tyson is this pastor in New York. He says this, he says, you reorient your life around what you love, not what you believe, 
what you love. See, you'll dedicate your life to the things you love most. You think about somebody who just falls in love with another person. They turn their world upside down for that person because they love them. They're always thinking about them. They're always talking about them. Yeah, okay, we heard about your boyfriend a thousand times. We got it. You like him. Great. They call them before they go to bed. They text them when they wake up. They rearrange their schedules and their lives to spend time with them and go on dates. The rhythms of their life are completely reoriented around that person. So we can say that we believe in God. That's good. But as the Bible says, so do the demons. But the problem is that the demons don't reorient their lives around God because they don't love God. So I know most of us believe in God's story. We say we believe it. But if we've really been freed to love God in worship, we need to seriously consider if we're reorienting our lives around our love for him. Because if God's story has changed you, it should change you. And if it has, we must reorient our daily rhythms by finding time with God every day. Because you'll reorient your life around the things that you love. Not what you believe. You can believe it's a great job, it's a great idea to spend time with God every day. But unless you reorient your life, do you really love God the way you say you do? Or honoring him by being obedient and living obedient lives. Responding to that love by loving him in the, by being obedient. We have to change our weekly rhythms, making Sunday worship a priority. I'm not saying you can't ever go on vacation. That's not what I'm saying. Linda's still on vacation. <laughs> not saying that. What I'm saying is making Sundays a priority and expecting God to show up here on Sundays. Like if you just changed your rhythm on Sunday mornings and just said, God, I'm going to go to church today and I expect you to show up. I can't wait for you to be there. I'm excited to worship alongside people. But God, if I don't see that you show up today, because I know you're going to be there, I pray that you'll show up for this person or that person. So you reorient your life around what you love. And the Bible's saying, do you want to know what you really love? Look at what you orient your life around. So the fact of the matter is, if we don't end up worshiping God we'll end up worshiping, worshiping something else. And we'll pick up that story and we'll remember and anticipate certain things from that story and we'll reorient our lives around that thing. So if you worship your kids or your grandkids, and you'll reorganize your whole life around their schedule. And if you're like me, you can get in the temptation of like just slinging nuggets in the back and getting everybody to their activities. I'm not saying like, look, it's good to love your children, Totally promote that. I think it's a great idea. As hard and as difficult as that can be, you should love them. But if you're reorienting your whole life around everything they want and what they do, that's worship, the Bible says. If you worship work, you'll constantly be thinking about it. 
answering emails, picking up extra shifts. Or if you worship approval, you'll do everything you can to make your friends happy or not rock the boat because you need people's approval. That's worship. And the problem is everything you worship besides God keeps you enslaved. So for instance, your kids or your grandkids don't appreciate what you do for them. Like, I don't understand why my four-year-old kid or grandkid doesn't appreciate me. They really should. So what I'm going to do is, instead of just understanding they're four, I'm just going to go, I'm going to do more for them. Try to get them, force them to appreciate me. So you just sit around waiting for them to express their gratitude. And then what happens is, oftentimes you don't get it. Because even when they do appreciate you, like parents, you know this, even if you think when they do appreciate you, it pales in comparison to what you've done for them. So that could leave you extremely sad and disappointed and oftentimes feel worthless. Well, Jody's kids, you know, they all, they all appreciate her. Why don't my kids appreciate me? Or John's kids, they, they appreciate him. They think he's a great dad. He should have his own TV show. My kids don't appreciate me like that. Or you'll never be satisfied with the amount of work if you worship work. Because there's always more work to do, right? Always more that can be done. There's always more emails to answer. There's always another thing that can be, another project to keep going. can always pick up another shift, couldn't you? What happens is we then pick that up and we work ourselves to the bone and we become exhausted. Or think about like your friends and your desire for approval if that's you. Like think about like no matter what you do, what happens if you do everything you possibly can and your friend still not happy with you? First off, you probably should find a new friend. But so many of us do that. We just keep going after the same person. Oh, I, just, I just need to do more things for them and they will eventually... Just be convinced that I love them and they'll want to be my friend. And what happens when they still don't? We become bitter. And then we're less likely to make friends in the future. And so we reorient our lives around what we love, what we worship. And when we don't do God's story, we do our story. And so life becomes about us. It becomes about me and what I want. And so I I, I can say that I believe in God But the way I reorient my life proves I really don't love him. I love me. And when that happens, we make even Sunday mornings all about me. Or all about you. And that's not the way of Christ, who never made it about him. So a lot of times, like, and this is probably closer to our circles, the reform circles, sometimes Sundays becomes all about education. And so many Christians have treated Sundays as the time to get educated. So either like the, you know, maybe the finer points of doctrine, right? So maybe this might not be our reformed folks, but maybe our dispensational brothers and sisters, right? Got to get the charts out and go over the end times. Because Revelation is extremely easy to understand, so let's make sure we just get the charts out. We'll understand everything and we'll all be good and we'll be smarter than everybody else. Or sometimes like the education comes just like in practical ways, right? I need practical tips on how to live my life or I need practical tips. I need seven steps to have a better marriage or to be a better employee. 
where we are told, like, here's the social or political issues, like, we should all get behind, or at least we should all get upset about. We come for education. And don't get me wrong, truth is important. It's absolutely important. But we have to be careful not to make Sundays about head knowledge that I get out of the service. Because if we overemphasize it, what will end up happening is we'll have dead orthodoxy. We'll all become eggheads for God and we'll miss out on real relational connection with him. And so we'll end up reorienting our daily lives around just being smarter than everyone. And we'll become arrogant. And some people, and this is probably more of our charismatic brothers and sisters, and even our Anglican brothers and sisters who I had dinner with this past week. Did I mention that? We emphasize experience. But if we overemphasize that too, that's a problem. So some Christians emphasize experience, right? It might be the beauty of the liturgy or expressiveness in the, wor- in the music or in the worship service. And of course God wants us to experience him on Sundays. Like that's, that's a really important thing. It'd be great to experience God on Sundays. And of course beauty and expression are important. Otherwise worship becomes lifeless and just pragmatic. But this too can make us f- make it all about what I, I get out of the service. So it becomes about how I felt about the service. And then we end up reorienting our lives around how we feel all the time. See, what we do on Sundays teaches us about how to worship the rest of the week. So if Sunday is all about how I feel, what's Monday through Saturday going to look like? It's going to be all about how I feel. If Sunday is about being smarter than everybody, Sunday is going to be all about being smarter than everybody. Monday through Saturday is going to be all about being smarter than everybody. Knowing more stuff. So worship's not about us. I remember Francis Chan as a pastor. He, one time after a worship service, a guy came up to him after church and said, Hey, Pastor, I didn't really like worship today. And Francis Chan said, That's okay. We weren't worshiping you anyway. <laughs> So we need balance of remembrance and anticipation of God's story. And this helps us reorient our lives around it. Right? If you overemphasize experience, you end up eating cotton candy all the time. And cotton candy is awesome. It tastes great. And it's good to have cotton candy once in a while. But guess what? You can't live off of cotton candy, despite what your kids and grandkids think. It's not going to happen. It makes a terrible dinner. So you can't have experience all the time. But you can't also overemphasize education because education can be like eating a steak. But you can overcook a steak. Amen? (laughs) I'll say amen to that too. (laughs) Where you cook the life out of a steak. You can cook life out of church by overemphasizing it. But it's got to be about the knowledge that I get. So we need balance. Because education is heavy on remembrance and light on anticipation, but experience is heavy on anticipation and light on remembrance. So we need both. And this helps us reorient our lives around love for God and his story. So the gospel frees us. As I've been talking about, the gospel frees us to love God. And when we reorient our lives around him, although it may be challenging to reschedule my week, or it might be awkward to tell my boss or my kids that I can't be there on Sundays because I go to church, It's ultimately more fulfilling to live this way because it's based on God's story. Remembering how he loved you in your sin and sent his son to die for you and rose again from the dead. 
and anticipating when he will bring about his recreation to completion and we'll be with him forever. And so we respond to this by reorienting our lives around his story. So I encourage and challenge you to reorient your life around God's story. For some of us, well, for all of us, we need to read daily. We need to spend time with God. We need to reorient our rhythms and make sure we're getting daily prayer and scripture to commune with God. Right? Just like the person who falls in love, right? they wake up and the, the instant thought is, let me spend time with the person I love. How can I do that today? I'll tell you what, that's not my instant thought. My instant thought is, where's my coffee? <laughs> I wonder if the Phillies blew a lead again. That kind of thing, you know? And then come to worship and seek to grow as a worshiper. Reorient your life around Sunday worship, not Sunday worship around your life. You're never going to become a worshiper and worship God the way he desires you to worship him if you're just trying to squeeze him into your schedule. And then embrace the aspects of service, of the worship service that might be unfamiliar or uncomfortable. Some of us need to come to church and need to yearn more for God's truth. We come to see people, we come to just enjoy the fellowship, but really we... We really need to emphasize the fact that like, it's important that we come and we learn God's truth in Scripture. I'm not trying to pick on you guys. Pick on myself. There's a lot of times I need to come and I, it wouldn't hurt me to be a little more expressive. It wouldn't hurt to like sing out the hymns. I have it on good source that it will not kill you to raise your hand in church or close your eyes when you sing or say amen every once in a while. It's actually scientifically proven. It won't kill you. <laughs> but myself included. And there's times we need to see the beauty in what we're doing. And some of us really need to just stop worrying about how worship makes us feel. Because it's about God's story, not ours. So the gospel frees us to love God and worship. And as I said, we, in worship we have to remember and anticipate God's story. And then we need to reorient our lives around it. So let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for all that you've done for us in creation and in rescuing us from our sin in Jesus. And we look forward to the day when he will return and you will make all things new and recreate the world. And may we reflect that by reorienting our lives around our love for you and your, and your story. To obey you, to reorient our rhythms around you, as we wait for the day when Jesus will return. And we look forward to that day. We praise you for your word. We thank you for it. We thank you that in it you speak to us, that you initiate the conversation time and time again. And be with us now as we finish the service and go out to our, our lives today. May we be, be a people 
who are worshipers as you would like us to worship. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.